Welcome back to our Sunday morning class on 1 Samuel. By the way, in case you were wondering, there is no handout today. We had a handout last week. I wanted you to be introduced to all of the people that we will meet in 1 Samuel, at least in the first 16 chapters. That's as far as I got. A lot of people. I also have a list. I, I don't know that I'll work up a, a sheet for it, but all the places. And you can do this on your own, of course. Just open up 1 Samuel and go, and go through and start uh, listing all of the places that are mentioned in 1 Samuel. I don't know if you thought about it much like this, but one of the things that does is lend credence to the authenticity of the record. When they can record places that existed and record them accurately, that's, that's pretty good evidence that the authorship is legit and the source is accurate. So anyway, with that being said, we need to do some reading in the first chapter. We're going to read through the first chapter and then talk about the events that get, get this part of history started. Uh, but let's begin with a word of prayer, and then, there, there it is, you can, during the prayer, if you want to sneak and peek, I don't advise it, but I just want you to know those are the readings for this morning, there's five of them, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to be here today, at least we should be, just thinking about what you've done for us so that we can make it out this morning and be here in this good place with these wonderful people, with your people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for each one here today. Thank you that I can make it out, that we can make it out, that we can be together, that we can look at your word, and that we even have your word. What a blessing it is. And to assemble here in peace, not even the slightest thought of anybody wanting to interrupt what we're doing. So we thank you and ask you to bless us to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there are the readings. Who wants 1 Samuel 1 through 6, chapter 1, 1 through 6? Anybody? All right, I say a hand in the back. I think that's Corey. And then 7 through 11. Somebody's got to take 7 to 11. There's Larry with 7 to 11. Oh, great. Would you like to take the next? Excellent. That's 12 through 18. And then third one. Third. I see. No. Boy, I almost got you, Diane. You put your glasses up, and I thought. <laughs> ah, there's a hand, Paul. You've got 19 to 23. And then the last one, 24 to 28. Who's got that? All right, Amy, here we go. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 1. A man from Anathan, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came from Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Seven to eleven. Who had that one? It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord 
she would provoke her so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaiden and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and the razor shall never come on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his family went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child was weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have cleaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she came up with her with three bowls, one head of flour, and a skin of wine and brought it to the house of the Lord of Shiloh, and the child was young. When they slaughtered a, then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me for my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. Thank you all for reading. First chapter of 1 Samuel. This, this likely will not be the practice throughout the rest of the class to read every chapter. There are too many chapters to do that every time. But I, I want us to get into at least enough of the text so we can actually read what's going on to some extent. Talk a little bit about Shiloh. Got to be there back in September. And this is one of the, the poster boards as you're going into Shiloh to give you a lay of the land. 
And just a few things about this. Shiloh's an Israeli National Park now. This is one of the places where there's no doubt that this is the place. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Judges chapter 21, verse 19, Judges gives you a very specific description of where the location of Shiloh is. So this is one of the places where it's not like it's it's tradition or it's... uh, the Catholic Church says this, or this church says that. No, this, this is Shiloh. This is the place. Signs are written in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. I don't know if you can see that in that particular picture, but they are doing their best to cater to a worldwide audience without having every language up there. Most of the green area in the map is make-believe. Uh, what I mean by that is if you go there, everything's brown and gray. Uh, they, they made this nice-looking little map with all these little green areas, and it's like, no, ain't, ain't much green there. There's some, there's some, but there's just not a whole lot of green in that area. Uh, the whole nation is pretty much uh, just rocks. It's, it's interesting to me to think about, because we weren't there 2,000 years ago to see what it might have been like then. But only God could bring a people into a land such as this and make it flow with milk and honey. And it just occurs to me, if, is this what he was thinking when he did this? I'm going to show you what I can do with you when I put you in this place. And it, it's a wonderful thing to see what God does with people. Uh, Joshua 18.1 records the tabernacle being set up here at this particular place in Shiloh. And this is where it was for 369 years. So... Where would it be moved after this? Well, they would take it out to battle with the Philistines because they were, I was going to say they were dumb, but that wouldn't sound nice, would it? But, but that was a dumb move to take it out to battle because that's not what God wanted done with the ark. But they took it out and they lost it to the Philistines. The Philistines had it for a while until God began to strike them uh, with various plagues and they said, we got to get this thing back to the Israelites. And you may remember they put it on an ark with a couple of milk cows and they sent it down the road and the lords of the Philistines, five lords of the Philistines watched to make sure that it got back to the Israelites because they didn't want this thing coming back to them. And when they saw that it got down in this particular Israelites field, they said, okay, it's it's back. Now we can go home and and have some relief. And that's, that's how the ark came back to Israel, but it never did. uh, As far as I understand, never did return to Shiloh after that particular time. Where was the next place? It would be set up. Set up in, well, it was, it was set up uh, before Jerusalem, but I, I did want to mention it would eventually make it to Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't a city in Israelite hands right now. Who would, who would eventually conquer Jerusalem and take it for Israel? That would be David, and that's why Jerusalem, a, a good portion of Jerusalem would be called the city of David. That, that's a later time. Here's a map to give you an idea, and I am sorry I meant to get the the laser pointer but I didn't so here comes Charles with the laser pointer thank you brother you guys are great I can always depend on you you can see the most obvious points of reference are the Sea of Galilee the smaller body of water to the north and the Dead Sea to the south and if you ever have an opportunity to go to those two places you'll really enjoy it especially floating on the Dead Sea Thank you, sir. Uh, I don't say floating in the Dead Sea because you don't float in the Dead Sea like you float in other bodies of water. You float on the Dead Sea. You lay your head back and it doesn't sink and go in the water. 
And I kept thinking, I'm going to get water splashed in my face. Well, it doesn't splash because it's so heavy. It's 32% minerals. So it's like laying in oil, laying on oil. It's hot oil. And it, I, had, I had some poison ivy where I'd been running around in the woods before I went over there. I got out of that water and it was gone. I'm serious. It, it's almost like miracle water, but it just, it's got stuff in it that is good for the healing of your body. Other places, uh, we all noticed that we had little abrasions and things like that. It was, it was taken care of. Now, wait a minute. I'm getting my story back there. It, I had other things that were gone. Debbie's the one that had poison ivy. She had to poison that because she was in the woods with me. Don't ask. We were, it was all legit. It was all legit. <laughs> Let's see if I can make this thing work here. Is that it? Oh, there it is. Oh, that's not that's not very good at all. I'm sorry. I, I thought that would, it shows up perfectly on mine. I apologize. Uh, there's Shiloh right there. So they would have crossed. This is the Jordan River, of course. They would have crossed the Jordan River. Right there is Jericho, and just to the west of that is Ai. Of course, right there is Jerusalem that would become the city of David later. But there's uh, Shiloh where they set up the ark. So that gives you some idea. And none of these places are very far from each other. They're all relatively close. Uh, just a matter of maybe, is it even 30 miles? I don't know that it's 30 miles from Jerusalem, but it's, it's all close. Uh, just give you an idea on the map where Shiloh would be. That's, that's what it looks like. Yeah. What's well, like one guy said, every place is walking distance if you've got the time. So, <laughs> but it was, it, it was walking distance. It had to be, they didn't have the means of transportation like we had today and, and they traveled. And when you go there and you see that country, you go, these were some tough people to travel these areas because you had to take everything with you. You had to take water with you. There wasn't water, just uh, no McDonald's, no state troopers, uh, no EMTs to come after you if you had trouble. Uh, that's why it was so important. Jesus talked about the Good Samaritan. It was so important that somebody stop and render aid because if they didn't render aid, you, you wouldn't make it. Somebody had to be there to help you. But this is what it looks like. Can you see those? These white things back, those, those mark the area where the tabernacle was set up. This little building is where this holographic display is. It's really neat. It's a high-tech thing. You go in and it's, you, you, there's enough light to go in and see what you're doing, and you all gather around this, this big display table that's encased in glass, and they project holograms on there to tell you the story of the tabernacle and all of the furnishings and the priests and what they did. It's really a fantastic way to show you and explain the history and the function of the tabernacle. This, by the way, was... Uh, the tabernacle was there so long that it wasn't just a tent anymore. They began replacing uh, the tent material with um, more... Uh, lasting materials, and they they made walls out of stone. And it was it was a little bit different than it was in the wilderness. This is a display of the jewels that were on the high priest's breastplate, blip on the front of his garment. He he had a a breastplate that he it wasn't armor like you'd wear into battle. That's what we normally think of when we think of a breastplate. But he had a a plate on his breast, fastened on his breast at the four corners. And it had these 12 stones. What did these stones represent? 
one for each tribe. There you go. And so he would go before the Lord to act as a priest with representations of the 12 tribes on his breastplate. This was a pretty neat display. You can't tell it here, but each one of those where you see all the colors, those are blocks, and you can spin them. And when you when you turn it, it would talk about things particular to each of those tribes, and it was a, it was a neat thing to see. We had Liam arrange them all so that we could see the stones that were displayed, and that's, that's what this was all about. This is its display. You can read that, can't you? I just wanted you to see this. This is a, a special board poster they have up undercover to talk to us about Hannah's prayer. So Hannah came, and we just read about this. She came to the tabernacle in Shiloh, and this is where she prayed. And this tells the story of how Hannah prayed for a son. Here's another view. With On this one, there is a depiction of what the tabernacle might have appeared like. By the way, we saw a lot of places over there, but the Shiloh, I, I still don't necessarily understand it, but Shiloh struck me as uh, the most meaningful of all the places we saw, and I still can't explain that. Maybe because it was so original, so much like it probably was then. Maybe that's what it was, because everything else seems to have changed a lot. Here's a picture. This is not one that I took, but this is one that uh, my daughter Jamie found because she knew I was making this presentation. She said, hey, Dad, this might work out good. Tabernacle location in the time of Judges in 1 Samuel. And I don't know if you can make that out. That's where it would have been, right there. And the Holy of Holies would have been farthest to the west, the holy place just east of that. And then you can see where the, the laver and the altar was. And it would have been about 150 feet by 75 feet twice as long as it was wide. So that gives us an idea of the area, the location, and the function of Shiloh. And there's a little, it's all like that, just brown dirt everywhere you go. It was funny, I thought, since there are no signs telling me not to, I'm going to go up to the tabernacle and I'm going to pick up a stone for a souvenir. And I, I went into the area of the tabernacle, and I reached down and picked up a rock, and I thought, what right do I have to take a stone from this place? And so I put that rock. Now, you might thought, oh, Barty, that's silly. It's just a rock. Well, it, it wasn't silly to me at the time. So going back up the hill, uh, Shiloh was a, it was a place. It was a city. It was a town. People lived there. Canaanite people, and there were uh, stones and half walls that had been broken down, ruins of the place, and there were some pottery shards, and I don't believe the pottery shards were from back then. I think the pottery shards are much more recent. I found a couple of pottery shards and grabbed one of those. That was my souvenir from the area of Shiloh, not from the tabernacle area itself, but the place just struck me as uh, very special, even though it was, it was that long ago. How long ago? About how long? The days of Samuel, a little over 3,000 years. But, of course, the, 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 putting up of the, tab, the setting up of the tabernacle there goes back those 369 years prior to that. 
And that is it for that. If you guys want to turn that off, we'll be done with that. So, Tabernacle is set up in Shiloh. By the way, the word Shiloh, you can look it up. There's a lot of controversy about the meaning of the word. Nobody's completely sure. Um, But my conclusion is, along with some others, that it is roughly... Uh, him to whom it belongs, which is an odd way to say things, but him to whom it belongs, which kind of makes sense when you read the first verse of the Bible and you think about that. Because the prophecy would be until Shiloh comes, and I don't think that's talking about the place where the tabernacle was set up. When Shiloh comes is, is a messianic reference, him to whom it belongs. And the first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, what did God do? Created the heavens and the earth. And then you read John's gospel, and how does John's gospel start? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word made everything that was made. So Jesus is coming to what belongs to him. By the way, what does John also write about Jesus coming to his own? His own did not receive him. But, thankfully, he says, those who did receive him were given what? The right to become children of God. That's John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, if you want to read that. Put that down in your heart. To those who put their faith in Jesus Christ were given the right to become children of God. All right. So there is that bit. Elkanah, what tribe was he from? He was from the tribe of Ephraim. He was an Ephraimite. Who were the Ephraimites? Uh, Is that one of the 12 sons of Jacob? Joseph's boy. Joseph was one of the 12 sons, but there's no tribe of Joseph. You ever wonder about that? He went down into Egypt and he married, I think her name would be pronounced Asenath. She was the daughter of the priest of Potiphar. So there goes the theory about only marry people in the church because Joseph sure messed that up. He married an idolatrous priest's daughter. And I'm not saying that's not a good idea uh, or it is a good idea or, or whatever, but that's who she was. He was married to an Egyptian girl, had two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was the firstborn, Ephraim was. And so Elkanah is an, a descendant of Joseph and Asenath, this uh, Egyptian girl to whom he was married and Pharaoh gave him that wife so that was uh, that's how it worked back then you're going to Pharaoh Pharaoh, hey by the way you need a wife here have this one okay well all right and then they have children and those children are now Israelites how about that God truly is interested in the entirety of humanity not just one nation he He created a nation through Abraham, and we're in the process of reading a lot of this history right here in 1 Samuel, so that he could bring forth from that nation his son and the law that would be the schoolmaster to bring us to his son, to Christ. That's what Paul would write in Galatians chapter 3. So Hannah's heartbroken. Why is she heartbroken? She didn't have any children. Who does have children? Penina, Penina, 
And Penina was so gracious about that. She just, don't you just read that and want to slap her? That's just mean. And she, she gave Hannah a lot of grief. And what did Hannah do with her grief? She poured her heart out to God. Learn a lesson from this woman. Learn a lesson from Hannah when, Hannah, when, when your heart is filled with grief or when it's filled with gratitude, thankfulness, joy, whatever your heart is filled with, take it to God and pour it out to him. That's what she did. She poured out her soul to the Lord. And did the Lord hear her? Absolutely, he heard her. I want you to see what it says because sometimes we miss things like this. It's just kind of stated so plainly and so briefly that you can miss it and not get the, the wealth and the richness out of it. But she is praying out of her, her broken heartedness, we could say. Uh, how does it, she say it here? Verse 15, but Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. She is here oppressed in spirit. I'm not drunk. I poured out my soul to the Lord. Don't consider me a worthless person. I've spoken out of my great concern and provocation. And what did Eli say to her? Now, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you your petition. And what does she do? She goes her way. She eats. And what else? She's no longer sad. Here's a woman who trusts in God, and she trusts what she's been told by this man of God. She prays to God. He says, go in peace, and she says, okay, I will. I will take that to the bank. I'm going to go in peace. I'm not going to be sad anymore. I'm going I'm to eat something. I'm not going to be as I was before. Learn from this woman. Man, this is a great lesson, just seeing her go through this struggle Offer up her prayer to God, make her vow to God, be assured God's going to hear this, and she goes on her way with a happy face. She doesn't wait for the fulfillment of her request. She goes on her way with a happy face, and her request is fulfilled. So I think about her and everybody else back in those days Do you think she had a little devotional Bible that she would read at night? Who had Bibles? Who who had anything written down? They may have had some things written down, but nobody had it like we've got it today. We've got any printed page you want to have, you can have. You can find it online and you can copy it. You can download it. You can order it from Amazon. And if you've got Prime, it'll be here tomorrow. That's what they say. I don't know. Uh, but, but just think about the access we have to the Word of God. And then think about this woman 3,000 years ago. And yet she had faith. She had faith to go to the tabernacle. She had faith to call on God. She had faith, so much faith, that she trusted. And there's a difference between faith and trust. Lord willing, talk about this later when I get to preach, if God allows that. But she had faith and she trusted in what she was told. And that's why she had this change of spirit. She was no longer oppressed. She was now happy. She got as far as she 
possibly get. She did. And she didn't get any closer than we can get today. I like to think about that too. He is making himself available all the time. What happened when Jesus was crucified, among other things? What happened to the veil of the temple? See, this tabernacle was a place. Who was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies? You had to be the high priest, and you better have all that stuff on. You better have the breastplate and the turban. You better have the sash, the belt. You better have everything on, and you better go in having washed your body and cleaned yourself up and go in there the right, because that was the only person who could do it, and he could only do it when? Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. One day of the year he could go in there, and first he went in there with the incense, and then he went in there to make an offering for who? For himself, because he had to have his own sins taken care of before he made an offering for the people, and then he would go and make an offering for the people. And Jesus dies <clears throat> Jesus dies on the cross, and the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place torn. How was it torn? To study this in Mark. Top to the bottom. Who's at the top? That's where God is. He's, it wasn't like somebody walked in and grabbed it, and, like you could do that anyway. That thing was massive, but he tore it from top to bottom, signifying, come on in. Jesus has entered the holy place, and he is waiting there. It's like our Hebrews, Hebrew writer says, it's our anchor within the veil. So all of this, uh, they had, if they had a clue, I don't know how they would have had a clue. But all these things that we're seeing in the tabernacle and in the priest, all of this, these are shadows of the reality that would come in the church. Guess who's in the church? That's where we are. <laughs> I mean, and so when I, when I hear someone express the idea, oh, got to go to church again, it's like, you don't understand. You, you don't understand. I don't know if any of us can totally understand. Now, there have been several hands. Was there some hands in the back that I missed? Okay, Billy? It was interesting to me that he kind of feel like I thought she was drunk. I'm uh, sorry? It's interesting to me that the priest thought she was drunk. And I don't know how we find somebody who thought they were drunk on the day of Pentecost when the apostles spoke another language and people thought they were drunk. Right. And here's a woman who poured her heart out for a child going to dedicate her life and her service to that child to put him in the service of God. Right. Here's apostles that did the same thing when the Holy Spirit came up on them. They dedicated their life to the service of preaching and teaching the Word of God for us today. And you know, both times when people thought they were drunk, yet they were dedicated to a cause that may make you, make you look like you're drunk, but you're eager to do this. Right. Good one. Any other hands in the back that I missed? Preston. I was just thinking about, you, you said something a while ago about how close to God. Could you get any closer? Could she get any closer to God? And then we had some discussion about that. And I, I worry that in our comfort, that we're not as close to God because we're too comfortable. When you go to God, you know, talk about <coughs> the forward spirit in, 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 in the Beatitudes. And... and I think we get closer to God in our trials and tribulations. I think about Mentor the other night when Mentor talked to us mm -hmm. and how close those people are to God. That's a shelter. 
that not is that's not just the church building, but that's the body and that's the shelter. That's the haven. Right. That's the closeness. And I I just think sometimes that maybe I need to work on that and try to get that close. It's a good observation because all of, the, all of the comforts we enjoy are a facade when you think about the fact that we are, each one of us, just as sinful and in desperate need of Jesus as anybody else in the world. It doesn't matter what country you're from or how desperate your situation is physically. Spiritually, we are all desperately in need of Jesus Christ as our Savior. However, all our creature comforts can make us feel, oh, we got it pretty good. I, I think we'll just finish up here, a little church, have a little church, and where are we going to go eat? Oh, I don't know. Which restaurant you want to go to today? Oh, well, I don't know. I've been to a lot of restaurants. Let's just go up here at the store. Let's get some T-bones or some ribeyes and take those home, cook those out. And, and then we'll, we'll get a bag salad. It's just so easy to have a salad. Now you get the whole thing in a kit. You get the, the dressing and the croutons and, and the greens. And so you can set that over there and look at it while you're eating the real food. And <laughs> no, no, see, we laugh about this because this is the way. What are we going to have for dessert? Anything you want. Just do we have it good or not? And this is what Preston's talking about. All of this stuff can make us feel like, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing all right. And I'm telling you, all of it's a blessing from God, but we need to be where Hannah was. We need to be pouring out our hearts and our souls to the Lord. Now, there's several hands, Paul and, and then Lee and, and, I'm sorry, Michelle. Very good. Paul first. I would just add an addition to that statement that yes, wealth and comfort is definitely a potential distraction and, it, and you know, you can very easily depend on that and not pay attention to the Lord. However, I would also caution that we don't fall into this mindset of being, or having less or being poor somehow is inherently more righteous. Uh, right. I don't think that there is necessarily a correlation uh, between the two, I think that we see examples in the Word of plenty of very godly men that God used in powerful ways that were wealthy. And my suggestion would be to see it more as an opportunity for stewardship and how you manage the wealth that you've been given. Do you glorify God in your work and in everything else? But not to fall into that idea that just because someone has less, that somehow they're inherently more righteous and more pleasing to the Lord than someone who is wealthy. Excellent point. Jesus talked about our eyes. He said, if your eye is whole, your whole body will be well. What's, what's he talking about? Is he talking about how good your vision is? You need to go get laser surgery or something on your eyes? He's talking about how we see things. And if we see the things of this world as blessings from God and we give him thanks for those and we move on with gratitude, that's, that's one thing. But if we take the blessings from God and we think, oh, this must mean I'm a pretty good guy. I don't really need to make much more effort because here I am. Look what God's done for me. I must be all right. I must be pretty good. And it's like, no, that's a dumb way to look at it. Your eye is not whole. You, you need to get squared away on that. You need to see things as God values things. Lee? In almost every instance, when Jesus is encountering people, the people are focused on the physical side, and Jesus is on the spiritual side. The rich young man, 
could have gotten, walked after, you know, followed Jesus and really gotten into the Spirit. So, it's just a, it's, it's been a problem, it is a problem, it will always be a problem, because that's going beyond our physical side to find those places we can get our spirit tuned in. And it, it's important stuff. This may be my imagination, or I may have heard it somewhere, that the high priest went into the, the inner with a rope tied around his leg in case he did something wrong. They could drag his body. Right. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard read the same thing. You, you can't find it in scripture, but it makes sense that they would think, you know, whatever happens to him if, if he goes in there, can't go get him. We and. See, how would that be if somebody thought about that today? Oh, Marty's going to go pray to God. We better put a rope around him in case God smacks him down. We can pull him back out of there. No, no. It's not like that anymore. It's, it's, it's different now. Michelle? One of the things, and kind of touched on a little bit, is that there's a lot of people that don't understand physically felt like she was being attacked on a regular basis, made fun of, she didn't have value. It's the way she taught herself. How many of us have times that we feel like that? But when she prayed and made a commitment, you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you, and I will do everything that I need to do. I won't cut his hair, I won't hit no She made a commitment to God, and then when God blessed her with a son, she followed through on her commitment, and, and that's the same thing that we need to do today. By the way, there's something we've been talking about is illustrated in the relationship between Hannah and Penina, Penina, Penana, that poor lady's name anyway. What did she have that Hannah didn't have? She had children, and it's like her her children, the blessing of her children made her feel like, oh, I can mock Hannah because she doesn't have those, whereas she should have been thinking, you know what? God could take my kids from me at any time. Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but, but that wasn't her attitude. That wasn't her spirit. Hannah's spirit was, and we have to allow for the fact that the difficulty in Hannah's life brought her to the point where she made this prayer. If she'd been living comfortably, she may not have made that prayer. If she'd been living comfortably, she might not have made that commitment. And I think about myself. How many times has God had to bring me to my knees in one way or another to get me to see some things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise? And and I remember reading this as a young man because I I like to hunt and I learned things about hunting. There's a guy, if you're a bow hunter, you know who Fred Bear is. 
if you're not a bow hunter, it's probably not going to mean anything to you. But Fred Bear, he, he said, when you're hunting, it's a good idea to get down, squat down, get low, because you can see under tree limbs sometimes, and you'll see the legs of the deer as they're moving through the woods. And I tried it, and it works. Sometimes you've got to get lower than where you are to see things you need to see. That's what I learned from Fred Bear, and he, wasn't, he didn't know he was teaching me about prayer. But, but that's what we're looking at here. So what we're seeing, God will work through Samuel to bring about huge changes in his people. And what we are seeing is one woman whose heart is broken, who is at the center of all of this. So do not believe when you are feeling down and out and oppressed in spirit and your life has fallen apart and maybe God doesn't like you because of the way things have turned. Don't think for an instant that you can't be part of a great part of a plan that God has for the future. That's that's something we could pay attention to. Steve? Uh I'm just thinking about this situation that Eli saw Hannah and thought she was drunk. Does this give us a clue, maybe, to the situation of worship in Eli's day, looking ahead to what the Bible says in the next chapter about his two sons and what they did? I mean, what I'm trying to say is, when Eli looked at Hannah and saw that she was drunk or thought she was drunk could this have been kind of a common occurrence at that time at Shiloh simply because of what we find out what Eli's sons were doing and what Eli thought he saw in him it, it could be That's, it's another one of those places where you know just one more verse if I just have one more verse to tell me if you answer a few questions I've got but there's so many places where you, you don't have that you're just left to to speculate if we're even supposed to speculate. I was about to ask if there's been one bill or two. Well, now there's been three. I think somebody's trying to tell me something. Yes. Yes. James had a lot to say about prayer and about coming close to God. In the fourth chapter of James, he's talking about the problems that are going on. Because they're, they're praying, but they're they got the wrong motive. Right. And uh, he even goes as far to characterize them as adulterous people because they were friends of the world. Mm-hmm. Talk about James 4 in prayer. All right. Now, in the seventh verse, he's showing them how to come close to God. Submit yourselves to God. And he gives them three things to do. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And then, from there, he goes on and tells them, in some specific but not uh, limited, things to do to come to God. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded Greet, mourn, wail, and change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. So that's a bookend. Submit to God, be humble to God. Those are bookends of that thought. And then the rest, he's going into some specifics about cleaning up your life in conformance to God's will. And that's how you come close to God. And then, when your attitude and your motives are correct, God's going to grant you those prayers. He's going to answer those prayers. And that's what he says uh, there in the beginning. And their problem is in their hearts. He talks about that in verse, or in uh, chapter 1, about verse 14, about their own evil desires. And he begins chapter 4 with the same idea. The reason you guys got problems is because of your own desires and your own hearts. So if you want to come close to God, bring your life up. Do all the It's very, very simple. Use the Bible as, a, as its own best commentary. I say that's what that is. Thank you so much for your kind attention and all your commentary and questions. It's been great. Lord bless you.